Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording within three prisons across the Colorado Department of Corrections. Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Sterling Correctional Facility. Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Denise Price. Andrew Drake. Terry Mosley Jr. Sean J. Marshall. Ashley Hamilton. Sarah Berry. Brett Phillips. Angel Lopez. Travis Barnes. Matthew Labonte. Ms. Grant. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. Because we recorded this season virtually across so many sites, there's going to be moments where our sound quality is not as perfect as we wanted it to be. We'll ask for your understanding and let you know that we're always working to provide a wonderful listening experience. This episode of Within contains mature content that explores themes around mental health, mental illness, and suicide. While listening to this episode and sensitive content, we ask that you please take care of yourself. Denise, we've been friends for years now. And I'm curious, right? Can you please take us back to how we, and that's to say our whole podcast crew at Within, how we landed here at Vital Diagnosis? Because our introduction to one another was unusual at best. And when I first met you, we had very, very little small talk, right? (laughs) And as far as conversations go, we dived right into the deep end the deep end of life, right? And all the things that come along with it. And I remember that in our very first conversation, we quickly focused on mental health and how you and I, as incarcerated podcast hosts, can be a voice for the voiceless. And honestly, you are more educated in this area than I am. And because of your experience in history, you schooled me and you made me aware of things that I didn't even know. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm also grateful that you were a driving force behind this episode. But my question to you is why? Right. Why drive this subject of mental health home? Why did you do that? I was one of the driving forces because mental health is something I'm very passionate about. I can say passionate because it's something that encompasses my life in many ways now but it is something that I've dealt with my entire life. Mental illness is something I've struggled with, survived, thrived with. So I think that it's something that I definitely know we need to talk about on this podcast because it relates close to home for many of the incarcerated. Did you know that the World Health Organization states that mental health is more than just the absence of mental disorders or disabilities. They also believe that our mental state is fundamental to life and can be regarded as a vital concern for communities and societies throughout the world. Denise, me just reading that, did you know that? I, not like just you reading it. I didn't know the World Health Organization acknowledges mental health as such a important thing um, in life. I'm glad that a bunch of doctors that sit on a bunch of boards from all over the world think that mental health is something that is fundamental to life. That's encouraging for me 
And I wonder to those listening to us today, if they are going to take a second to think about their own mental health and what that looks like in their overall well-being as a human being. Yeah. But to zoom that into us here at Within, in this episode of Vital Diagnosis, we talk to a variety of people, right? We speak with CDOC Mental Health Supervisor, Ms. Abeta, CDOC Mental Health Peer Assistant, William Davenport, Licensed Professional Counselor, Lindsay Wool, and Licensed Social Worker, Courtney Sheldon. And to begin our first segment, we introduce our associate producer, Sarah Berry. As she speaks with the mental health supervisor for Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Miss Abeda, who is amazing. She is hands down one of the most caring individuals who has quite a large profile of experience to speak from. And we discuss mental health. We discuss the treatments inside the women's facility and broadly cover the topic because I want everyone listening to think we're not trying to say that Things aren't being addressed. We're just trying to bring more awareness to what I think is one of the most secondary crises in America that's riding the coattails of the pandemic. And I think that it, this is a good time to, to talk about it. It is a good time to talk about it. And I agree with you. Right now, it's just under the shadow of the COVID pandemic. But I think that it's important to say that mental health is a pandemic all its own. You know, it's a pandemic that's unspoken. And no one speaks about it until it's too late, you know, until someone commits suicide or someone gets killed in the streets. And then it gets reported that that person had a mental health issue. And then it gets debated how public officials should have or or might have responded to that situation differently. Right. And and and, and that's very concerning. It's very concerning because how many people deal with mental health issues just living their everyday lives? And I'm not a doctor. I'm just some dude on a microphone. But I do understand that every human has a state of mental health. Some of us are healthier than others, but we all need to be aware of other people's sensitivities in this area. And that being said, let's get up with Sarah as she speaks with mental health supervisor for Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Miss Abeda. They discuss mental health and the treatments available in the women's facility. All right, we are here uh, with Miss Abeda and Denise Presson, our co-host. Hello. And hi. hi, guys. It's so good to see you guys. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we are in a conversation about mental health and kind of how that fits into um prison systems and what that looks like. Okay. Um, so the first thing I would really like to ask you is what is your role and what do you do within the system? So I am the mental health supervisor for the general population mental health team here at Denver Women's. So DW actually has general population and then we have a residential treatment program. Can you give us a little bit of a history of mental health illnesses and how that is viewed within the system? Yeah. So just doing my own like research and trying to get information about it, people used to think like way back when that you were possessed or you had spirits in your brain. There were homes or like places you would put people essentially, like you get the term like a sane asylum, hospitals, um, which then started being shut down around the 70s or so. And so that's kind of where when somebody who had a mental health issue or mental health illness that influenced their behaviors and it was untreated could have led to 
um, committing a crime or doing horrendous things or just things that got them in trouble with the law in general, and they have been kind of pushed into the criminal system or the justice system. So then how do you think that that's viewed within the system itself? So within DOC, what does mental illness look like from the perspective of DOC? It's interesting. So just like with everything, DOC puts things in numbers and scales and boxes and that kind of thing to be able to manage and assess, right? Everybody that comes up within DOC, they come through DR at their intake. You all get assigned a P code. So what exactly is a P code? Yes. So your P code is your psychological or mental health code. And it ranges from a one to a five. One is no mental health needs or no mental health history. A two is you might have had mental health treatment before, but you don't actively want or need mental health services. A three is the vast majority of the population that myself and my team meet with. And that truly just means you have an active diagnosis. It can be anything from an adjustment disorder, you're trying to get stabilized on some meds, maybe you just need a sleep medication, to you know schizophrenia, depression, that kind of major depression disorder, those kinds of things. Fours and fives, it's influenced by your resource consumption. So are you having a lot of mental health crisis contacts? Are we having you placed on a mental health watch a lot? Or are you having more frequent contacts with us? Are you self-harming more? Um, different things like that. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go it for just, it. Uh, so yeah. like if you had to get assessed, you're a P1, you're mm-hmm. assessed. And then how long does that take to go from P1 to P3? Even though we there's a, there could be a deterioration in that time, how long does that generally take? Like to change your P code? Do yes. We can do it in the session. So you could immediately, like, mm-hmm. if I'm a P1 and I'm, I feel like my world's getting ready just to fall apart, yeah, uh, it definitely could happen and then more treatment could follow. Yes, absolutely. So say you were a P1 and you, will use my office as an example because you're in my unit and my office is in your unit. You come and knock on my door, hey, Miss Abeda, do you have a few minutes? I've got something going on. If I have the time, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, come sit down, what's going on? And you explain to me the situation. Um, well, my what I will do is I will kind of try to determine, okay, do you just need to kind of process what's going on? Do you feel that you need more mental health intervention? Do you feel that you need psych meds? You don't have to take psych meds to be active with mental health treatment. I have several people on my case that just do counseling, but they're receiving active services. They have an active treatment plan. We're working on things, but they don't want meds, and that's okay. Some people just want meds, and that's okay too. You guys have that option. It's just getting you to that point. So in that, in that session, we can determine at that point, do you want me to change your P code? And I explain to you what that means. This is what active mental health treatment looks like within DOC, yes or no. And then I put an adjustment disorder typically in the system because psychiatry is the one who will give you like a more official diagnosis if you need meds. If not, then we'll do a different diagnosis. Awesome. So if you could break down kind of what the mental health care looks like that is provided with DO, within DOC, what would that look like? Um, so it, it ranges, and that's the thing. <laughs> that's part of why I love my job is because I get to see everything. Um, we do everything from like short, brief intervention care, such as maybe like a crisis notification of a family emergency, or your. Um, oftentimes, we get a lot of contact or crisis calls or requests for mental health contact when somebody doesn't make parole and they were expecting to make it, and then they, their world is shattered. So helping them work through that brief intervention crisis contact, right? So we've got that, then you've got crisis response, which is a large part of what I feel my job is at the time. And by crisis response, I mean it's varying from thoughts of hurting yourself, killing yourself, killing or hurting somebody else, florid psychosis, grave disability, those extreme cases. And then we have just like our regularly it's quarterly or monthly or however frequently scheduled individual counseling sessions where we focus on, okay, what treatment needs do you have? What would you like to work on? Um, what are you working towards? That kind of thing. We address your treatment plan. Um, we do 
um, behavioral health transition forms, which is a form that we fill out with offenders that are getting ready to leave and go on parole or go out to the community. And sometimes we use that information to help prepare documents for people that are applying for like interstate contacts and that kind of thing too. If you are incarcerated and you are experiencing mental struggles, please contact the staff member, a mental health specialist, or a mental health peer aide. If you are not incarcerated and you or someone you know are experiencing an emergency concerning mental health, please immediately call 911 or contact the Disaster Distress Helpline at 1-800-985-5990. Thank you for taking this break with them. Let's get back with Sarah, Denise, and Miss Abeda. So then, Denise, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, do you feel like they're, because as a, as a resident of DOC and also as a mental health peer assistant, um, do you feel like there's an ease of access in being able to get in to see a mental health professional? I think that it's changed over the years. I know the mental health peer assistant program, we are kind of a bridge quicker to to staff to say hey this person's really struggling um but i think in general i don't think that there's just enough staff to the population ratio i see it all the time i see them wanting to care i see them wanting to do better um, but there's just not enough of them to go around for the needs that are within the population so i think doc that's i think that's why the mhpa program was it was brought upon it's getting easier but i don't think it's enough do you feel like there's a difference between mental health needs for men versus women? Yes and no. <laughs> I feel that men in general are more resistant to talk about what's going on than the women. And so I say that because I actually pulled this up from my training. All Denver staff have to go through annual training. And because we have a female facility and a male facility, we have to go through gender responsiveness training every year which is kind of like reminding us like, okay, um, the, essentially like the criminogenic factors or the reasons that led women to being becoming incarcerated can vary and can be different than typically than those of men. But I just always find the statistic just shocking every time I do this training because I'm one of the staff like instructors. And even though the population like number wise of females is a lot smaller than the males in the state, um, this was, as of December 31st of 2019, 78% of the female incarcerated population required mental health services, whereas 30% of the male population. Oh, wow. That's a huge difference. Yes. What do you think is the attributing factor to that? I think women are more likely to ask for help initially, um, more willing to ask for help. Um, they want to be heard. They want to talk and that kind of thing. I think that the men, just from what I've experienced, they'll open up, but they're resistant at the beginning because there's that stigma of, I don't talk about my feelings. That's not a thing. I'm supposed to be strong. I'm not supposed to address anything. Mm -hmm. But just this stat always kind of blows my mind that, I mean, so 30% of, so 5,282 males, that's still a large population. Yeah as opposed to like 1486, I think that says for females, but still that's regardless, there's just more need and there's just a lot there. And I wonder how many of the, how underreported that number is for the male population. Absolutely. So then it makes me wonder like with that 78%, like how much of that do you feel like is trauma that women have dealt with? 
Um, and also, even though you you don't really work with the men a whole lot, do you feel like trauma is like an underlying factor, or do you feel like it maybe varies between men and women? Um, I think trauma can be an underlying factor as a whole. I think, again, like the women are more willing to identify it as trauma. We all have experienced traumatic things, whether they're big traumas or little traumas, depending on your definition. I can't tell you what's been traumatic or not because I don't love your life, right? Same kind of thing. You look like you want to say something over there. No, I just remember your car. St- uh, tell your car story. My car story. Oh, yes. Oh, the car story. oh, my example of trauma and our interpretation of it. So yes. we all three of us are in a car accident, right? I might have a traumatic brain injury from it and where I like can't ever drive again because every time I see a car I like lose my mind you could be completely fine over here Sarah like no issues can hop in a car again no problem and Denise you maybe drive like a little grandma or you um, are a speed demon because of your incident and your interaction with that with that incident we all three went through the same exact thing but we all experienced it differently and so that's something we have to keep in mind. I can't say, well, you're wrong for driving like a grandma or you're wrong for being a speed demon. You can't tell me that I'm wrong for never wanting to drive again. And I can't tell you like, what's wrong with you? Why are you fine? We all experience the same thing, but our experience within that incident is all separate and different and it's our own. So we can't judge each other for it. Yeah. That's like <laughs> such a great example. I always love hearing that because it, it puts a lot of perspective into that, which also then goes to show how hard it is for you to be in the position that you're in and trying to deal with such a vast population Mm -hmm. and all of the struggles and and the issues that come along with that as well yeah that's got to be extremely hard it can be at times um such a term as like secondary trauma or correctional fatigue i think they've used that word before Mm. in some trainings and things like that but i think just in general and denise has heard me say this before you know one thing that we as mental health clinicians have to do and like i tell my mhp is the same thing you have to make sure your cup is full before you take care of somebody else because you can't give from an empty cup. So if you find yourself drained, if you find yourself struggling, if you find yourself feeling, you know, crispy is the word I use, like kind of burnt out and that kind of thing, like take a step back, take care of yourself, figure out, okay, what am I not doing? Am I not sleeping? Am I not eating? Would you ask me what I ate for breakfast? I hadn't eaten anything, (laughs) you know, things like that. Um, Am I staying hydrated? I saw this quote where it said, make sure you stay hydrated and get sun because we're just... Um, house plants with emotions but it's true like make sure you're staying hydrated making sure you're getting sunlight taking care of yourself because that's how we that's what we need as human beings just basic needs if you're not addressing those basic needs your cup is going to start getting empty and you can't give to somebody else's when you bring up a really good point so then I'm I'm curious then as to how does that like you as a mental health professional Mm -hmm. As a clinician supervisor, you have had experience working in facilities outside of prison and facilities inside of prison. Because inside of prison is a very different dynamic. So dealing with the the people and the um, the residents within prison is totally different. Mm-hmm. So how does that affect you personally? Like how how do you deal with that from the position that you're in? Like how do I cope with it? <laughs> yeah, or how does it affect you? Um, I mean, there are some days where I leave mentally exhausted as opposed to physically exhausted. I spend a lot of time in my office or sitting at a table talking to somebody. So I use my brain a lot because my tool, my biggest tool is my brain and my mouth, essentially. Like my job is to help you process, help you talk through it, help, I'm going to help try to deescalate and I'm going to try to help process and figure out what's going on because that's what my job is. I see you as a person first, right? Like it, I know where I'm at. I'm reminded where I am at every day. I have to walk through a metal detector when I get in I have to wait for people to open doors for me like I know where I am when I come to work but I work with people 
I don't work with offenders. I don't work with inmates. I don't work, you know what I mean? Like, I have a quote on my board in my office where it says, don't, um, that the numbers define you. Because we're, I, I try to see everybody here as a person first and foremost, and then acknowledge, yes, you are an offender. You're here for a reason, but I'm not here to judge you for that or treat that. I'm here focusing on what's going on in the moment. I love that. I love the fact that you have that outlook in coming into a place like mm -hmm. this because I feel like a lot of times people almost I don't know if they don't expect what they deal with when they come in here because you do deal with like people who have committed crimes mm -hmm. and sounds like you've as a as a whole there's a lot of different systems that are put into place to try to help um as much as you possibly can Absolutely. within um, the system so then I kind of have a two-part question yeah. of like what what care do you feel like is needed and what would your long-term vision of mental health care within prison look like so like Denise has spoken to it, I feel that we just need more staff, <laughs> ideally to be able to provide maybe more in-depth treatment, um, as much treatment as we feel like we would like to have. So like I said, like there's days where I leave and I'm mentally exhausted, but I know if I just had that one little thing, just even the smallest thing of that helped or things I didn't think of it that way or whatever, I know I had a good day because that made that difference. But ideally I would like to see, you know, just a greater idea of like more acceptance of asking for mental health for one that removal of that fear of like I don't want to ask for help like it's fine like it's okay like it's okay to not be okay mm -hmm. like I have that on my desk <laughs> and I tell people that all the time I tell myself that sometimes but that more so of an acceptance among the residents here but also like the staff not feeling like oh well they're crazy like they're having a bad day just like you have a bad day kind mm -hmm. of thing and so just being able to see even more treatment being provided. So I have one last question yeah. for you. What would you say is the relationship between mental health and prison? Well, like I spoke to earlier, I've seen it, and from what I've researched and just what I've heard um, growing up and everything, that they have kind of used prison as like a catch-all for people that struggle with mental health and like a dumping ground, and that's not what it needs to be. And so ideally if somebody does end up in prison providing that setting for them to allow them to be able to grow and to address those issues and to be able to provide the treatment that is needed to where they can become more productive members of society essentially and like better people in general and feel healed and feel that they're more comfortable within themselves and just accepting of where they're at with things and see their own growth so. denise what would you say to that question i i agree I agree. Prisons become the dumping ground for people, for the castaways. We're the jettison of society, you know? So uh, I think definitely mental health and corrections need to be a, a marriage to create whole people. And it's, in my mind, such an underserved population because I don't think people truly think about the mental health needs of those that are incarcerated. Life doesn't stop just because you're in these walls. Like, how do I address my daughter having you know her first dance how do i address like my family my, my grandparents growing older how do i address all of these things and so providing those skills and just being able to do that i mean that's why i love my job so well on behalf of the population i just want to tell you thank you so much for everything you do like you from the minute you started working in this facility you are such a bright light if you could multiply yourself it would be amazing <laughs> thank you i yeah. appreciate that that's yeah. very kind of you <laughs> yeah thank you for coming and talking with us of course thank you for having me denise 
I said it before and I'm going to say it again. I'm just some guy talking on a microphone. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an educator. I'm not a professional. I'm not an instructor. I'm not a psychologist. Right. I'm, I'm none of those things. It, even if you were any of those things, you still have mental health. We all, as human beings, have to think about our mental health. And whether you are diagnosed with an illness of mental health or you just want to do a daily check-in, that is mental health. Sitting in the chair right now, like everyone listening, if they take that moment right now, what's going through their mind? What thoughts are they thinking? How are they feeling? Like, what's their emotional state? That is you caring about your mental health. And if you look at your friend or you, some guy cuts you off in traffic, instead of being mad at that person or instead of looking at your friend and being upset with them because they're not being some kind of way, maybe their mental health is not on the same level as you. And I know we always get into these broad, complex conversations because that's the reality of these simple things. Mental health is not just a diagnosis. But I want to know, and I want to talk to you, Andrew, about this, is how are we looking at it and experiencing it incarcerated? Because we experience treatment, we experience... Um, stressors, triggers differently in prison. And so I guess my question to you is, is what does mental health treatment look like in DOC? Because I know we asked this, I know Sarah asked this to Miss Abeda and her answer blew me away. Yeah. Sarah and Miss Abeda really touched on subjects that we usually find difficult to speak about. But to answer your question, I do think that it that it is larger than just prison. I think that it's a societal issue and that we as a society have historically approached the topic of mental health incorrectly. I think that I think that if we were to treat mental health like physical health, if we were to have regular mental health checkups like we have physical checkups, you know, every time you walk into a medical facility, uh, they check your blood pressure or they check your weight, you know, why not check your mental health status in that moment as well. Wait, they do when we walk in here. They do check our mental health. But this isn't a medical facility. This is a correctional facility. So it should be more equipped. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I do think it needs to be more equipped because there's such a small population of clinicians or mental health professionals versus how many people that come into prison. And the statistics on it, I don't have them with me. They're staggering how many people have mental health diagnosis or mental illness untreated. Did you know most people don't receive a diagnosis until they walk into a prison facility? So think of the months, the weeks, the the years that culminated to this moment when they're sitting in prison at DRDC and then they finally receive a diagnosis. We need to pay attention to it because maybe it keeps people's families from getting ripped apart before incarceration happens. Maybe it keeps a crime from happening. I think that we all have to realize there's a large investment in acknowledging mental health, the stigma of it, and then the treatment of it. I agree. It should start as far back as elementary school. And I also think that it should just become a part of our everyday society. You know, the way that we educate one another, the way that we educate our children, the way that we encounter each other. You know, we should approach things from a sensitive perspective because uh, you never know what a person is dealing with. You can look at a person, but you don't know what war is going on inside of them. You don't know what pain they're dealing with. You have absolutely no clue. Right. None of us do. So I think that it's very important 
that we have some form of focus in our society dedicated to mental health, because in my opinion, this issue is is very solvable. It is solvable, Andrew. Absolutely, it's solvable. You know, we talk about humanity all the time on this uh, within our group. I think we're we're talking to other people that see humanity in others and are trying to be the builder or the creator of more humanity. And I think that it's a very solvable problem. Um, and I go back to like the interview with Dean Williams and he's like, we have to ask ourselves, do we have a problem? Yes or no. And that's, I think that's where we start. Do we have a problem? We do. Are we solving it? Yes. Little by little, I believe that the Department of Corrections is starting to take account what mental health, how important it is. And knowing how important it is, I got a question for you. Is it okay to not be okay? It really is. And Miss Aveda said it in the interview with Sarah. And I, I, I believe that. There are days when I'm suffering that I tell myself, it's okay. You're not okay, Denise. You don't need to be walking around smiling. You don't need to hide your pain. And I think anybody that really knows me, you know, Andrew, I don't hide my pain. And I think that that's where I've come to in my journey through mental illness is not hiding my pain because I did that for so long because I came from a family. We don't talk about our problems. If you're crying, stop. I'll give you something to cry about. And I know I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to that. And that is because my family was not equipped emotionally to deal with mental health. And so I think that we have to, you say it all the time, Andrew, education is how we solve a lot of problems. And what that looks like, I don't know. I think that's you learning what your things are, what your triggers are, what your needs are, and then not hiding what you're feeling. So listening to you, I hear you and I see you. And you're right. You never hide those feelings. And the good thing about that is, is that I never have to wonder where you're at, Denise, because you always tell me, you know, you tell me when you're not all right or if you're bothered by something and you do it in a very respectable manner. But I do want to ask you, how do you get through that? You know, when you find yourself in those dark spells in a dark day, what is the silver lining? What is the sunshine? Um. Well, I'll go to before there didn't seem to be sunshine some days. You know, I've suffered with depression my whole life, was in and out of psychologist offices, psychotherapists. I had so many hours of treatment as a child, probably from about 13 is when I really started acknowledging my symptoms or living my symptoms, I guess you would say, you know, not wanting to go to school, being angry a lot. And that's generally from depression is because when you're depressed, you don't want to deal with things. And so for a child with no skill set, it came out in anger a lot. So the journey through depression a suicide attempt at, at 15, the journey through um, incarceration at a young age. And you're, it's so hard because this can become such a clinical conversation. So let me bring it back to me so it doesn't become clinical because I'm not a doctor. I mean, I'm probably an expert and lived experience, but, <laughs> but the reality is, is um, my journey through mental health um, from illness to symptoms to illness to symptoms to illness, and I say it like that because every time I had illness, there were symptoms that were either before or after, and the symptoms were generally the prelude to the illness being full on, um, and then that came about with me committing crime or me um, acting out here in the facility. I remember when I first dropped here, I came out of ADSEG, out of county jail. 
um, because of my mental health and my behaviors there. And then I came here and I stayed in ADSEG, the old ADSEG, for two and a half years almost because of my behaviors associated with delusions, with paranoia. Um, I heard a lot of things when you spoke there, especially when you spoke about being a youth and struggling. And, and I'm going to assume that a lot of people didn't understand what you were going through at the time. You were talking about your symptoms, right, leading into different behaviors and coming to jail and, and, and being incarcerated. And in my opinion, what all of those things did was turn you into a number in somebody's stat book because there was data created based off of your decisions in that diseased way of thinking. And, and I find that especially sad because your individual needs were lost there. You know, something deep was lost. Um, you weren't being met where you needed to be met. And I, and I wondered, you know, what was lost? You know, was it, was it your sense of being? Was it, was it your humanity? I mean, I don't know. I reoffended and came back to prison eight years later. Denise, honestly, I can't help but, but to wonder, you know, I wonder what if someone had addressed your true needs and has spoken to you in the way that you needed to be spoken to or cared for you in the way that you needed to be cared for? Would you have come back to prison or or is it that that your mental health excuses that behavior? To answer your first question. I think there has to be a hard, hard question answered when you are somebody that has ever dealt with mental di- mental health diagnosis is you have to understand this is going to be a lifelong process. It is not something that goes away. It's kind of like addiction because mental health has recovery states, just like addiction has recovery states. Um, and I say states as in moments of time where you are not suffering through your addiction or your illness. Um and I do think, had I received better care and long-term care, I do not think I would have reoffended. I almost 100% would say, no, I wouldn't have reoffended. Um, am I excusing my crime on my mental health? No. I think that that's what happens a lot in the population of the incarcerated is we like to say, and I hear it and I've seen it, people do try to excuse their crimes on their mental health, but there is a difference between excusing your crime and becoming accountable to who you are and your identity as a person. And I think that that has to be, that has to happen with people in here is who are you? Find your identity when you're incarcerated and make sure it is 100% who you are all your good things, all your bad things. But when you're dealing with your bad things is to really come to grips with that and what your needs will be. Because I think unfortunately, and I, we're, this could go into like the reentry episode or any conversations that we have had over this whole season is more care needs to happen. More has to happen. If, if if the world was getting all their needs met, we wouldn't have the issues we have. And so when basic needs are not being met, and we can go to like Maslow's hierarchy of care, it is a, 
It's an actual thing that mental health uses. And at the foundation, it's your basic needs, safety, security, food. If those things are met, then you can build off of all those other things. And when you look at in the incarcerated population, I think a lot of people in here come from maybe not a lot. I don't know the statistics. I'm not like a data nerd like that, but a lot of people are in here because their basic needs were not met at some point in their life. And so they had to find ways to survive, to create those basic needs. More people do need more care. More people need to feel love and empathy. And that leads us right into our next segment where within segment co-host Brett Phillips interviews William Davenport. William is an incarcerated man in Sterling Correctional Facility, and he has dedicated his time and his life to helping other incarcerated people who struggle with mental illness. Employed as a mental health peer assistant in the prison, it is literally his job to talk to and serve as low-level intervention for those who are experiencing difficulties. And I also have to say this. Billy is my friend. And I've known him for a number of years. And he is a person that lives what he speaks. You know, just as Dean Williams, Matt Hansen, and Andre Stansel are all agents of change on the executive level of the prison system in Colorado, William Davenport is an agent of change on the ground level in the day-to-day operations. Billy, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. It's good to see you. Good to see you. It's good to see you, too. Good to be here. So tell me, what is the relationship between mental health and prison? The relationship between mental health and prison. Mental health and prison, first of all, everybody in prison has some form of mental health. I don't want to say disorder, but problem, issue, or something. Even myself. Everybody deals with mental health. I like to be the one who gets to deal with it personally just because of my own personal mental health experiences and, you know, dealing with a lot of various mental health issues in my life. You know, I tell my story a lot about my mom who struggled with mental health issues as far as depression and, you know, suicide and, and going through, you know, many suicide attempts and living and seeing that and being around to witness, you know, my mother actually try to kill herself a few times. So the, the, the fact that I get to deal with this in prison with people, I like it. I enjoy it. And I can't wait to, um, you know, help somebody out more and more each day. So I hear your passion. I mean, it's it's obvious to me. I've known you for a while now, and we talk about this a lot. But is that where your passion comes from, from the relationship with your mom and seeing all, seeing all those things happen in your own life? Definitely. That's exactly where it comes from. So, you know, growing up, you know, having a mom who tried to kill herself many times is something taboo. But I feel it's like healing to let people know and to um, let others know that they're not alone who experienced this type of stuff or even the most far-fetched or craziest thing you could think of that would happen in your life, you know, you're not alone in that. Other people do experience this and go through this too. So I'll just kind of give you a quick, you know, summary of the story is I grew up in Colorado, Denver, and for a long time I didn't know that my mom had suffered from depression. And for a while she was on a lot of different 
prescription medications and different things. And she would always tell us different things like, oh, you know, I have high blood pressure or, you know, this one's for that and this one's for this. And so for a while, you know, I seen my mom addicted to um, prescription medication. And it wasn't until when I was in high school, you know, that one day I really found out what was going on is I actually was ditching school and stayed home and my mom would go to work early in the morning before I would go to school. So I would never expect for her to be home. So it was easy for me to ditch school and stay home and do whatever. And uh, this one particular day, I was home, sleep, and uh, my mom comes down the stairs and I hear somebody coming down the stairs. I'm kind of like, oh man, what's going on? And as she gets down the stairs, she opens the door and she's just like, she's in real, you know, incoherent, kind of like a real dazed state. And she's like, Billy, what are you doing here? And I'm, and I'm in shock. I'm kind of like, oh, shoot, I'm thinking I'm in trouble. And I'm like, uh, I just missed the bus, Mom. And she's like, you're not supposed to be here. And I'm like, I know, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to school. And then just like right at that moment is when she falls down and passes out. So I'm not knowing what's going on. And I'm like, oh, shoot. You know, I, I run over, grab my mom. I'm like, Mom, I'm trying to wake her up and stuff. And, you know, she's out cold. So I don't know what to do at that point. So I end up calling my grandmother. And I'm like, should I call 911 or what, what do I do? And she's like, no, don't, don't call the ambulance or whatever. I'm on my way. So by the time she gets there, a couple other of my family members arrive and uh, they're all just like ready to just put her in the car and take her to the hospital. She's not, you know, she's breathing, but she's passed out. So I knew at least that she wasn't dead, you know, so we carried her, put her in the car and we took her to the hospital. And, you know, my grandmother then was like, you go to school and, you know, finish your day. But that was the day that I found out that, you know, my mom's suicide attempt wasn't that wasn't the first time but that was the first time that I actually witnessed it and was you know there to see see the results and what happened so that's rough man thank you for sharing that story if you are incarcerated and you or someone you know are struggling with thoughts of suicide please immediately contact a staff member, a mental health specialist, or a mental health peer aide. If you are not incarcerated and you or someone you know are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or contact the Crisis Text Line by texting the word SIGNS, S-I-G-N-S, to 741-741. Thank you for taking this break within. Let's get back with Brett and Billy. So you are a member of the MHPA program. Would you mind, you know, telling us what that is and like how you are involved in that? So I'm a mental health peer aide and it's a job. I actually work for mental health. What we do is we're low level intervention for mental health. And um, we're just, we're like on the scenes, we're on call. Anyone can call for us at any time of the day and in Sterling Correctional Facility in any unit, we can actually go back to ADSEG and to the hole and, and meet with people wherever, wherever they're at. And what we pretty much do is we try to be that in-between spot for residents. We're um, there to kind of be that comforting force that you know, we want to comfort inmates. We want to reassure them that 
you know, they're not alone, that we can help them. We want to be there for them. I want to be there for them. I want to be that person who can actually assist another person before he makes a bad decision, a bad choice, and uh, realize, you know, consequences and, uh, you know, hopefully make a better decision or figure out, you know, what it is that this person needs. That's kind of the position and role that I play. We're low-level interventions, so I don't diagnose and I don't prescribe medication and do things like that for people. But what I do is try to guide people and lead them in the right directions so that they can make a, you know, a wise choice, a smart decision, a better choice. And, um, man, I think it's fulfilling. It's great. I've actually helped a lot of people. And, and uh, in doing this job, people don't know, but they actually help me also. You know, it actually feels good, man, to be able to help people out. So, so in prison, uh, we are in here to learn how to be better citizens, to be, become more than we, what we were when we came in here. How does the MHPA program benefit DOC, of course, but also society, the greater society as a whole? I can tell you this. From what I've, been, I'm going, I've been down for going on 18 years, and when I first fell, you had to be ready for something crazy to pop off, some violence or a lot of people wigging out, overdosing, and, and, and uh, just a lot of, you know, crazy stuff, man, prison stuff, you know, stuff you see in the movies, you know, was actually really stuff that I seen in the earlier years of my um, prison experience. And the way times have evolved now, you know, the way society has changed and the, the issues that arise now are completely different and new from, you know, issues 20 years ago or however long. So the way that DOC benefits from this is that we're in the fields, you know what I'm saying? We're, we're, we're like the soldiers on the field. And, you know, a lot of the high-ranking and people in, in, the, in the offices and stuff, they don't actually get to see and know what goes on in the field. So when you put a man in the field who knows what's going on, who's been there and done that, I think he's, be, he's more effective in being able to, you know, help and, uh, you know, make sure that no man is left behind. That's kind of the role that MHPAs and other mentors and, and people in my position play because we're on the same playing field as a lot of the dudes that we're helping, that we're out, you know, we're on this battle together, man. So I think DOC helps out a lot because, you know, what things DOC can provide that will help us help each other and in return, you know, actually rehabilitate a person or, or change a person or, you know, save a person from uh, their drug habits or save a person from their, you know, their, their, their gang situation or whatever situations people are going through. And, you know, of course, they want to reduce the violence. They want to reduce the recidivism. They don't want the same old people returning back to prison, these same old people that's, you know, causing all these problems. And, and in the mix, you know, you know, you guys know what it is. People that's in the mix, man, after a while, you know, you give these people an opportunity to change and, What's, what's good about it is we realize and we can see that those people who, who want to change the uh, butterfly effect that they have on others, and uh, I think DLC is seeing that, and I think that helps. And I think a lot of people, they're tired of prison, so when they get out, <laughs> they don't want to come back. And uh, that's, that's how this program benefits and helps people in prison and society. Right on, Billy. Thank you so much for your time and for all of the emotion and, and heart and, and energy that you put into us. Uh, we really appreciate you, man. Man, no problem. I thank, thank you guys for, you know, even allowing me this opportunity to 
you know, be a part of something great, man, and being able to share my story and pay it forward and, you know, keep keep the mission and purpose that I'm trying to fulfill going forward and going on, man. And uh, I just thank you guys for, you know, for actually caring too, man. Listening to Billy share his story about his mom. Uh, wait up, hold up, hold up a moment. Let me tell you really quick. I absolutely love Billy's mom, right? She is so sweet and kind. She's like that mom that is everybody's mom. She always shows care. She always has the right thing to say. And to top all of that off, she's she's cool as hell. <laughs> and as he shared the story about her, I couldn't help but to forget that he is incarcerated while he's sharing this story. And I say that because whether a person is in or out of prison, mental health affects us all. And you would never know these things just by looking at her. And Denise, you always say this. You always say how we see, you know, quote unquote, something, but not necessarily what is really going on. And it could be it could be anything and anyone at any time, right? It could be the mom suffering from depression. It could be the heroin addict. It could be the son that plays football. It could be the businessman. You know, the list is endless for the quote unquote suffering. Wait, we've used suffering a lot, Andrew. And I think it is an appropriate noun to define some, some moments of people's lives. But I also want people listening and those affected with mental illness and those not, those supporters with people with mental illness, to believe that it's not just a diagnosis of adversity. It's not. Illness can be healed. It absolutely can have symptoms be maintained with medication and therapies. And people can have full, healthy lives that have been diagnosed with mental illness. I completely agree. And that takes me to the stigma of it all. And I'm guessing that you would, but but would you like to comment on the stigma? Do I want to talk about the stigma? Of course I want to talk about the stigma of mental health. It's ridiculous, you know? People don't walk around going like, I'm diagnosed with bipolar. I'm diagnosed with schizophrenia. Because they won't, because the fact is it, it creates that space for people to judge instead of caring. And um, society itself has marginalized all of those that are other I know that you've shared this, Andrew, but can I get personal with you? Of course you can get personal. And I think that after all these years, you know, we're beyond that. So you shared with us in the way back when we were coming on our way back into season two, you know, from that long break with COVID and producing this season. When we grappled with season one, you had shared with all of us finally that you had been diagnosed with lupus. And at the time, and now, it still is a seemingly unseen illness that you have. You are correct. And uh, you do see the disease, but you see it in different ways than I experienced the disease. You know, you may see me quiet and you may perceive that to be me being apathetic or as if I'm removed or, or as if I'm not invested in the conversation or, or whatever, right? But... The reality of the situation is that nine times out of 10, I'm just tired or I may be in pain or or something. Right. There's something that's going on that you can't see, but it's going on inside of my body. 
and all you see is that there's something wrong. And, uh, yeah. But that's exactly why I, I brought it up. Not, I mean, I'm always grateful that you're vulnerable with that because I think it, it, it changed the way I saw you. But then it really made me realize that I had had all these judgments on you. And then the minute you told me your truth, I was like, ooh, shame on Denise. Shame on me for not asking, for not caring. But that's mental health. It's the same way. Uh, we have created such prejudices and as negative associations about sad people or people suffering from anxiety or delusions, you know, that we have created such an uncomfortable space that people who suffer don't want to reach out because they know they're going to be judged. It's hard for them to reach out if they are suffering. And then the people who do care, I think sometimes we don't know how to care for each other when we're, when we're experiencing something like that. I don't know, because we, unfortunately, of a society, we've made it awkward and weird. Awkward and weird. Like talking about sex in the public in the 1920s. <laughs> it just becomes strange, right? And it, and it shouldn't even be that. And because our prisons are a microcosm of society, I honestly think that our society as a whole doesn't know how to talk about or communicate about mental health and mental struggles. And in my opinion, I think that those difficulties trickle down to our correctional facilities. And then in turn, I think our society and justice system uses prisons as de facto mental hospitals. Right. And in this moment, I assume you agree. But I want to ask, do you agree? Would you agree? Uh, yes. And I know the history on it, but I'm not going to speak it because I'm not a historian. But yes, we do use prisons, jails as such. And um, because of that, I also know that not only do people incarcerated struggle, I also know the staff within DOC struggles. Because as we start acknowledging more and more needs of the incarcerated, of residents inside facilities, staff has to shift their way of thinking too. And so then it becomes this delicate balance of security with illness and care and you go, they remember how you went back to like the data and the things like that. Um, when I'm just a number and, you, and then you have to start caring about this number, there becomes this weird wavy line of security and humanity. And anybody inside a facility that's staff will tell you security comes first. Security usually does come first. And uniting security with healing is a hell of a thing. And... As we map out this very rough and tough terrain through our experience and conversations, I do believe that this can become the actual blueprint for our collective brighter future. And next up, we have you, Denise, and our Within music producer, Travis Barnes, sit with licensed professional counselor, Lindsay Wool, and licensed social worker, Courtney Sheldon, in a very candid conversation. These two self-defined advocates work inside the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, which is the first facility anyone who was sentenced to the CDOC enter. And I'm excited for everyone to hear what these ladies have to say, because you all dive into some pretty abysmal waters. All right, hello, my name is Travis Barnes. 
and I'm sitting here with Denise Presson. I'm Lindsay Wool, and I'm an LPC, which is a licensed professional counselor here at DRDC. My name is Courtney Shelton. I'm an LSW, which is a licensed social worker. In this episode of Within, while our other episodes are mostly interviews, in this one we like to have a conversation about mental health and trauma within the Colorado Department of Corrections. So for starters, I can say that both myself, and if Denise doesn't mind me saying herself, we both were on the other end of mental health behavioral treatment, where initially our introduction into the system, we had to be treated by psychiatrists or psychologists. We both were on medication. I know we both have been on suicide watch and had to go through the process of receiving the business end of what you guys do as professionals and can attest to the fact that it works when working with the right people. Denise and I have gone from being clients to now we're actually mental health peer assistants who work with people who have behavioral issues. And so from your vantage point, when we're talking about mental health and trauma within the system, how big of an issue do you guys see that? And I guess that would be the tipping point of where we jump into that. Well, it's huge. <laughs> well, if I could say that, I would, I would say every single person who walks through the door has trauma, and that goes to people who are incarcerated plus the staff. Everyone has experienced some sense of trauma just being in this setting. And not just trauma that happens or occurs within this facility or within CDOC, but the rate of people that experience trauma in their lifetimes and end up in prison, I think is probably a lot higher than what statistics can tell us, especially in a male facility. You know, men are less likely to own up to trauma or to say that they experienced trauma. Before working in a prison environment, I worked in child welfare, and I remember when I got here, I was like, why is trauma not something that is targeted from a clinical standpoint? Because everybody that comes through this system at intake, we interview them and we ask them about their past. But the amount of trauma that people have experienced in their lifetime does have effect on how they behave and how they're able to react to certain situations that might be a reason why they end up here. And I also think it's important to know too, a lot of the men at least that I've talked to about trauma, initially they don't necessarily know what it means mm -hmm. and they think that there's a common belief that the trauma has to do with either military or it has to be so, um, so aggressive that they don't fall into that category and they automatically discount their own experiences as being traumatic even though it personally and subjectively was. Yeah. So do me a favor and un unpack that, one of you. So what is trauma? Trauma is any time that an individual reacts intensely to any situation they consider to be threatening. And, you know, and that is subjective to each person. It might be very traumatizing for me as a child to get my lollipop taken away. But for Lindsay, she's like, oh, my lollipop got taken away. It's very subjective to, to who you are as an individual. And, and it not necessarily means that they have to, when you said respond yeah. intensely, um, I want to preface that by responding intensely might be an internalized response. It might not be mm -hmm. so external that you are shaking. Yeah. Or uh, it might be something that you've totally just internalized and maybe your blood pressure is going up. Yes. And people can't notice that on the outside. Yeah. Um, I often think of trauma as something in your environment that poses a threat. Mm -hmm. It can be traumatic. 
I know that's pretty vague, but yeah. so is trauma. Trauma yeah. is a very vague yeah. topic. So with that definition of trauma, let me give you an example. So there was this one time, you know, I, I was driving down the street and I was involved in a gang and, and gang lifestyle and culture and a rival opened fire on me while I was in my vehicle. I hear the bullet hit the car and I was like in a dreamlike state, right? As I experienced it. And then later on in life, when I would think about that, I would feel this tightness in my chest and then I would imagine it going the other way. And then I would literally have to breathe and tell myself that it didn't happen. Like I would like, we're okay, it didn't happen. And then I've been shot at on multiple occasions, but I, I never walked away from those instances feeling like I was a victim, you know? Like, hey, I need to call the cops. You know, this guy just tried to kill me or something like that. It never even entered into my mind because it was just a part of my lifestyle, right? That was my, that was my environment. That's what I signed up for. That was the way that we lived. And then here I am later in life. And sometimes I can watch something on television or it can be a conversation. And then I would literally feel like I'm reliving those moments to one point I said man I think I got PTSD or something like that like I feel like I've been to war and I've come back because I feel traumatized by those experiences but when I was going through it I didn't have a language that could encapsulate or, or even articulate what I was feeling on the inside you know until years later almost a couple of well, also when when you're going through what you're going through when you're being shot at when you're doing those things there's a lot of things physically going on with you right your adrenaline's pumping it, it you are in that like fight fight, fight freeze zone like completely and that's one thing that trauma does is it triggers that response that stress response mm -hmm. in our body and in our mind so that we can survive in some way so i think what you described is a great example of how you know, going through that trauma at whatever age and then later not being in that same situation but still having that same somatic response. And that can manifest in prison. Yes. And one thing I wanted to say when you were sharing it is you you were going back and you were thinking about it and you're like, well, what was I going to do? Call the cops and be a victim? Say I'm a victim? Right. <laughs> and I noticed, you know, your tone changed. Yeah. And it's interesting when you say victim because it's, does experiencing trauma make you a victim or does it make you a survivor? Hmm, wow. Mm -hmm. No, that's... Changing that language. No, and that's, and that's real. And I'm curious if we want to get it back to trauma and how that translates in CDOC. Right. How did those experiences out in the community, and like you said, you... You, you, had, you had to carry this, the this, How did you carry that in here with you when you yeah. didn't have a gun? Yeah. Well, so going back to when I was going through it, so when I came in and they diagnosed me with having this, that, or the other, I'm like, what? Right? So when I came into the system, that's where I was at. Like I was at the, the height of what I know now, my psychosis and my ability to grapple with the world that I was living with was like I had to make these rules for myself. And the rules were for me to not talk to other people about what I see or what I'm hearing. But I, what I wanted to ask was, Denise, like, can you speak to um, trauma and some things that you experience, especially as it relates to your transition um, into corrections, the, you know, the Department of Corrections and the treatment that you received? Well, um, thank you. And as you were talking, Travis, and also as um, 
Lindsay was speaking to is it is subjective. And I thought of your experience and it's so I'm on the other end of just of the spectrum as a white woman um, that grew up in suburbia America. And uh, my trauma looking back was like started at seven years old when my mom didn't take me to, uh, to work with her one day. Um, so my abandonment issues. So like trauma can be very subjective depending on how you experience stuff. And I think uh, what you had said, Travis, when you were talking about your experiences, you were in it like you were in it looking out. And I think that uh, that speaks to like everybody's like life. We see it as from where we're at in that picture frame, so to say, like when we look out of our eyes, we see the world as it is from our experiences. And even when you when you or myself were in a psychotic state um, with the break of what reality is, is is a shared, you know, agreement, so to say. I think that that just speaks to life experience overall. But then when we have caring people that come into our lives and I'm saying caring and I'm pointing that out for the fact that we need more care period. But then I think of the day that I stepped into DRDC because that was a very traumatic experience for me. Um, I don't think anybody that's walked through DRDC cause we all have, uh, didn't experience trauma because that's when you are face to face with choices you've made in your life and choices other people have made for you in your life. But I want you guys to speak to the, the reality of what men, what it looks like for mental health with men and where do they go to cry? Cause crying in prison isn't something that's culturally accepted and there is no safe place to deal with that. What does, and everyone's watching, right? Everyone's watching and, and there is judgment, there's self judgment, there's judgment walking back into the pod. I want to ask one last question. How can we assume prison is a place to heal when that's just perpetual trauma happening in that moment? If there are no spaces for men, especially because we all know that the overarching emotion for men is anger, but underlying each one of those is so much hurt, so much pain, so much untrust. How, how do we get people to understand there's, those are those needs? Now, I wouldn't say just in CDOC, but I would say anywhere that you go into any place and say, I, I ask them 16 questions and then determine their treatment of mental health from then on out, I, I don't think that completely meets the need. And I think that it would take um, a lot more mental health providers to truly um, do it in a way that I ideally see possible. I know there's like other things that, that exist and that have to happen and occur, but for me in an ideal world, I think that we would have many more clinicians that can touch base with everybody that comes through here and really sit down with them and say, you know, I know you went through intake and completed this appraisal, but let's sit down, let's have a conversation about your life. Like, and that might take some time and unfolding, um, but I think you're able to touch base on things that people just don't want to say when they first come in in, in and a I think 10 we, minute interview. Another thing that I wanted to touch on um, when you say mental health care in prison, there's a very, very big obstacle of being able to provide um, services, which is confidentiality. It's almost impossible to find a confidential setting in prison because of so many barriers as far as security, um, the safety of, of both you and the, 
the client. Available space. Available space. Um, I don't know how it looks at other facilities, but I know here we meet with our clients in a bubble looking room. So there is glass surrounding the whole room and every person who walks by can see if you're crying mm -hmm. and can see that you're talking to Miss Wool, who's a mental health clinician, and automatically they know that you have some sort of mental health needs. And so that automatically puts up a barrier. And makes it hard to have quality mental health counseling. That's what makes our work as mental health clinicians in DOC yeah. uh, just completely different from community mental health counseling. Yeah, and I think uh, you know one of the answers to that is that's where our advocacy play comes in. That is a question that I've been trying to get to the bottom of for a very long time, and that's just you know where do you feel safe crying, or when was the last time you cried? Or it, those questions and, and getting that, that perpetual answer of like, Miss Shelton, this is prison. We do not cry. Like we cannot let somebody see me be vulnerable. And I think that it's gonna take a comprehensive solution from a lot of different areas, not just mental health, but being able to acknowledge that um, it's, it's difficult for an individual to completely and comprehensively address their mental health if that, they're not able to express their feelings in a safe environment. And how can we provide that safe environment for them to express whatever they may be feeling? And I, yeah, I think it also goes back to the expectation though. I mean, of being counseling and mental health is a very woman-dominated field, even the professionals that work in it. And so for these men to meet with these women, it's like automatically there's this barrier you don't understand. Mm -hmm. You're a woman. Mm -hmm. um, crying is a little bit more acceptable. So for you to encourage or to say that I, it would be healthy for me to cry, it automatically, um, it places this barrier that we, is another hurdle we have to jump over. Thank you guys very much. I think you two should have your own podcast just about mental health. Uh, it would be absolutely wonderful to listen to. Okay. So, listening to this interview, this thought and this word popped right up into my mind. The word resiliency. And... I would like all of our listeners to ponder this attribute because, in my opinion, resiliency is an attribute. And it's actually, Denise, a question <laughs> that you wrote some time ago. But I'm going to ask you, and it's a pretty deep question here. So, is it a solo innate ability to overcome or is resiliency a result of relationship to others? Denise. What is resiliency? And and please, I do not want the Webster's definition. You know, give me your real life experience definition of it. I think that we become more resilient based upon the relationships that we build with one another. I don't think that it is something you're just born into. It's not like, you know, the day that you're born, you're gifted with resiliency. I think that it's your parents, it's your neighbors, it's... uh your uncles, your aunts, your community, your church, um, your school. I had some great school teachers growing up, and I had some great principals growing up. 
And I look back to them and they were the reason I was resilient through some really hard times growing up. So yeah, I would have to say to answer your question and hopefully everybody else listening can really think about it because that is deep, Andrew. Deeper than Atlantis. And another deep question that was asked, a question that can actually attest to your resiliency surrounded your trauma. And Travis asked you about your trauma and not to revisit it, but what did he ask you exactly? Oh my God, he did. He goes, could you speak to the trauma of your experience in DOC? And in normal Denise fashion, I skated right over it and I avoided it because reflecting on it right now with you, I experienced a lot of trauma at the beginning of my sentence here. A lot of symptoms I had were pretty severe and I avoid questions like that because the truth of mental health, the perception of it, the treatment of it. And yeah, so I, uh, yeah, but I would consider myself not a survivor now today sitting here with you. I think I'm thriving now from, from that person, this journey that I've taken over, you know, I'm 41 years old. I see every gray hair in my head now. And, uh, the journey I've taken, I'm thriving in my life. You are thriving. And to touch on what you spoke about earlier about relationships, because Lindsay spoke to sitting down and having a conversation about someone's life. Right. And that's important. When you interact with someone or you engage in conversation with the person, you should ask them questions about their life. But you just don't ask them, you know, for the sake of asking them. You have to be genuinely interested in the answer because one thing that drives me absolutely nuts is is when I'm walking and someone asks me like like, uh, hey, man, how you doing? Or, hey, what's going on? Or, you know, how you holding up? And then they just keep on walking and they use <laughs> they use that that question. How are you doing? They use it as a form of greeting. And that drives me nuts because it's a very serious question. You know, what if I'm not doing so well? Are you going to stop and see what's wrong with me? Are you going to stop your life and help me create and exercise some form of solution? And, and, and most often people don't. Most often people, they ask the question and then they, they just keep on moving. Right. And that really bothers me that we as a society do that, that we use. How are you doing as a form of greeting, as another way of saying hi? And I think that I think that it's very irresponsible of us, because if you truly care, you have to pay attention to what a person is saying. You have to pay attention to what a person is doing and going through. I mean, but 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 if you don't care, you know, then just move around, you know, just move around and live your life. But don't ask the question how you're doing. And because, like I said, I think it's very irresponsible. No, that's the thing, though, Andrew. It is irresponsible. If we're going to talk about humanity and our accountability to each other, we also have to look at our fellow incarcerated residents and go, I'm accountable to that person. Whether I like you, whether I don't like you, if I really genuinely am going to ask you, how are you? I should be thoughtful to go, what if she's not having a good day? Do I have five seconds? Otherwise, it should just be like, hey, walk on by, right? But I think that that's what we do in life, though. We walk around in our own little bubbles, our own little worlds. Yes, we do. Until that bubble gets popped. And then it's like, damn, 
I think we're asking a system to solve societal problems. It's a societal problem. It's a health problem. It is not a correctional problem. This is Ashley Hamilton, the executive producer of Within. The Within team and I wanted to take a moment just to acknowledge whether you're listening to this inside a correctional facility, maybe you're incarcerated or you work there, or maybe you're in the public in in the community, that mental health and mental illness, struggling with our mental health, affects most all of us. A lot of us on the Within team We've struggled with our mental health in various ways, in the past and in the present. We want to say, without trying to be cheesy or making this a PSA, that if you're struggling right now, in whatever way, if it's feeling hopeless or dark, or if you're feeling afraid, or whatever it might be, there are people who understand Genuinely, there are resources that can help, really. We want you to know that if it's feeling particularly dark, there will be more light again, and that there are a lot of people who are ready, willing, and able to support and care for you. And the next time that someone asks you how you are, or you ask someone else how they are, we hope that you'll really take the time to be honest. During every interview we do for Within, our resident poet, William S. Graham, sits and listens. He writes a poem inspired by the interview. For this episode, Vital Diagnosis, here's Will's poem. Do you mind? Do you mind if I ask you a question? How do you think? Wandering thoughts that sink deep as broken ships at the bottom of the sea. Do you think about your thoughts? Do you truly see yourself reaching for help, asking, begging to be free? In your mind, are there pictures hanging on the walls? Different frames and pictures, some big and some small. A story told in each one saying open your eyes and don't be blind real people are suffering i'm just trying to help them help themselves do you mind for more content music poetry and visual art look deeper within at thisiswithin.com within is ashley hamilton executive producer andrew draper co-host denise presson co-host Terry Mosley, producer. Angel Lopez, media production and creative support. William S. Graham, Denver Complex creative consultant. Sean Marshall, associate producer. Travis Barnes, creative music producer. Sarah Berry, associate producer. Matthew Labonte, segment co-host. Brett Phillips, segment co-host. Within is a collaboration between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Thank you for listening and choosing to look within.
Yeah.